Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Bio, a podcast that dives deep into the stories of our leaders, their journeys at Bain, and the value they bring to the firm. We're kicking off this season with Prasad Narasimhan Salor, a partner and leader in our technology and cloud practice based out of our Boston office. Today, we'll talk with Prasad about his journey to the U.S. and Bain, how he was introduced and now leads our tech and cloud practice, and his leadership in our Asians at Bain Affinity Group. Welcome, Prasad. Glad to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Prasad, as we always do, let's uh, start with your journey to undergrad and engineering and how you decided to do that. When we were talking earlier this week, you had mentioned that that was probably not the path your family had in mind for you. Can you share a little bit about that with the people listening? Sure. Happy to. It's interesting, right? I come from a family of doctors. So my grandfather was a doctor. My dad is a doctor. My mom did her PhD in genetics. My brother is also a doctor. And it's been something that's always been embedded in our family. I guess as I was growing up, I I felt like maybe I don't want to be a doctor. Maybe I am the black sheep in the family. And it so turns out, like at the time I was growing up in India, it's a lot different now. If you don't want to become a doctor, you end up being an engineer. And so I ended up going down the engineering route, despite the fact that I learned more about engineering after I got into it. And I wouldn't say I'm like the most excited engineer. Like it was, it was like the passion that I had, but, but it was, it was a good second path to start on. As a fellow engineer, I would say not a bad choice from a family that does have healthcare professionals as well. You finished your engineering degree and ended up, I think, going right to graduate school after that, right? How was that? And how did you end up where you ended up for grad school? It's a couple of reasons. So the first is, I think, coming from a small city in India, as a part of my engineering program, I also had the opportunity to do some internships, to work at some companies, to go visit manufacturing facilities and stuff. As any 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 18-year-old would feel like, I came away from those projects and from that work feeling like there was more to learn, there was more to explore And there was more to see. And I wanted to open and kind of expand what I was doing from kind of the small city in which I had grown up and where I was going to college. So like going out of India was a very exciting path to just basically start exploring it. The kind of conundrum is, as I mentioned to you, I was not excited to be an engineer. Now I'm doubling down doing a master's in engineering. And that was like a, a tough choice to make because the other choice was let's go straight into work. But I felt like it was the right one because at least... I could explore more things while doing my master's, and that would give me a better idea of other things I could be doing. So hand on heart, were you tempted to go to medical school after your engineering degree? I was not. I had friends who went to medical school, and and the difference in medical school in India, I don't know if you know this, is you jump straight into medical school right out of high school. And it was intense. Like my friends who went straight into medical school, you know, you have so much reading and so much to do straight coming out of high school. Like so many were burnt out. I was glad I had not made that choice. So you made your way to a master's degree in the U.S. And I don't know that many people will pick this up on the bio, but you ended up in Cincinnati, which is not usually the first stop for people coming from outside the country or especially from Asia. How did you end up in Cincinnati? It's the craziest thing. This may date both me and the state of the internet in India and kind of where we were in the late 1990s. But in my small city, there was internet was just starting. There was not a lot of information. So you literally had to go to the U.S. embassy. And then you'd go there and then there'd be this thick binder and like all these brochures of the various colleges. And, and all you got to go off of was reading kind of what was in those brochures and then like trying to figure out where you want to apply. So I applied to a pretty 
wide swath of colleges and, and got into a number of them, you know, like, like University of Michigan, University of Texas at Austin, University of Cincinnati. Wow. I actually did not know where Cincinnati was, if I had to, like, humbly admit. Like, it was kind of a little bit, like, after I got in, I was looking up where exactly Cincinnati. And then, like, what was exciting was I was lucky enough that University of Cincinnati offered me, like, a free tuition, like, offered me, like, a graduate job. So it, it almost made the cost of the education pretty small for me to be able to come. And so that probably tilted me towards Cincinnati, along with the fact that, like, there's a number of opportunities in stuff I was interested in beyond code engineering. So they had this program around systems engineering, which we'll talk a little bit about, that was interesting for me to pursue. So, Prasad, you started to touch on this, but you get there for the master's degree, and I know you started uh, working with a professor that sort of put you on a different path uh, than maybe you had envisioned when you got there. Really fascinating stuff, and probably the early days of cloud computing and network architecture in some ways. Why don't you share a little bit about that? Because as as an electrical engineer, I found it fascinating. When I got to Cincinnati, I quickly realized I'm not going to be the type of person who's going to go do deep research in engineering and go deep into like certain uh, certain niche topics. And so I was trying to look and find someone who had a much broader, diverse array of interests. And so there was this pretty amazing professor who had a very interesting background. I mean, he had he had done mechanical engineering, he had done an MBA, he had done electrical engineering, and he was exploring this concept of, at that time we called them as software agents and autonomous bots, but essentially it was the concept of, you know, there's all these computers sitting everywhere, pretty idle in the nighttime. If we could put a software agent into each of them and solve problems in a distributed way, we can harness a lot more computing power than you could if you were trying to do it in one central machine. And you have to remember, like, in the late 90s and early 2000s, the order of magnitude of computing is much lower than what it is today, right? And so that was the idea. And then, so he was trying to apply it to a bunch of operations research problems. So can you solve planning problems? Can you solve all these problems that companies struggle with that they solve manually at that time? And so it was was a really interesting area to dig into and and enjoyed kind of doing the work with him. What humbles me always, and maybe as a side point is, I don't think I envisioned when I was doing that project that cloud computing would become what it is, right? That is kind of what has always impressed me about the technology world is you massively underestimate how far this can go when it really actually works. So, Prasava, you finished that degree. The research is is honestly kidding aside fast. You know, it's like just really cool stuff and cutting edge stuff. You you ended up taking a job in the U.S. afterwards. Did you stick with that field? I really wrestled with this question a lot because the choices I had was, do I really push myself and go for a Ph.D. and really kind of dig deeper into this? Or do I want to continue to push this forward? And so my kind of clear focus was I want to see how these type of technologies work in practice. And I really want to focus on what value can be created and how do companies work and how can we use this to do something different. So that was kind of my focus. I searched pretty hard for what type of company might be a fit and ended up very interestingly in this whole field of uh, planning and scheduling software, planning software that really took off in the late 90s. So there was a company called I2 Technologies. There was a startup in Boston, and they were doing some really cool stuff, which was essentially building cutting-edge planning software, like the same type of problems I was trying to solve. 
and then take that and apply it to a variety of companies. And it was the initial era of supply chain software, if you will. It was exciting to go into that and see if some of these things worked in practice. And give people an example of how that software would be applied today, because I know we take for granted that, you know, you can order six different things from Amazon and it shows up at your door in three hours from four different delivery people because you ordered it on your phone while you were walking home from wherever you were walking from. And I don't think people understand everything that goes into that. And again, you were really at the cutting edge of that, right? It is pretty amazing how all of that comes together. I'll give you two examples. So one, my master's thesis was pretty fascinating. So at that time, the airport shuttle companies were pretty popular. And so the whole theory was, it's cheaper for you to take an airport shuttle rather than go in a cab, especially if you're price conscious. And so there would be the shell companies that would take your order, they would pick you up, they'd pick three or four other people up, and then they would kind of send them to the airport. And each of them have different flight times, different addresses and stuff. And so my master's thesis was, if each of these shell companies could be kind of an independent, like could make its own decisions, how would you figure out the problem of who are all the people that you could pick up what are all the windows and which airports do we need to drop off at? How do you minimize the distance between these people so you could have the most optimal route and get them in the quickest time to the airport? And so have them all solve their problems independently based on customers they've already picked up and then come back to how much would you then, like, so if each of these things were planning on their own, how much would they then be willing to pay to the central engine or cost to the central engine so that they could take someone on? And then the central engine would then allocate that to the cheapest kind of person, if you will. So it's pretty interesting to see kind of how that worked and how, how you kind of applied these type of algorithms like at scale to, to kind of do that. And to me, like, again, it's fascinating to see how all of that has played out in real life. And I can, for one, admit that I never foresaw like all of that in real life becoming the kind of way like Uber and other things do today. But it's again, exciting. It's kind of a, what you do in academia can often portend to kind of what the future might be, although it takes a long and nonlinear path to get there, right? The second one is, I'll give you an example that I do. Like one of the things I was very excited about, the company I joined was a startup they had acquired in Cambridge. This company used what was called genetic algorithms-based planning, so what it really was is there's a lot of problems that can never be solved because there's too many options that are available that cannot be computed. And the idea was you could help kind of companies by, by randomizing the solution, if you will. You can help companies identify how to do something in a little bit more optimal way or discover a better answer. And so we would go to like automotive companies like a Ford, GM, or Chrysler. And if you think about the assembly line, the thousands of cars on the line, or hundreds of cars each day, each car has a different configuration, a different paint color, a different set of things that need to go in. If you don't do it correctly, the line wastes a lot of time because there's too much switching going on. By the way, fun fact, at that time when I was doing the work, it cost $60,000 every time they switched the color on the paint gun from like a red to a blue or something else, right? So you don't want too many of the same color going in a row, but you don't want to switch too frequently between colors because of the environmental cost of trying to switch paint colors. And so then you would go in and take these type of uh, planning algorithms and you'd, give it, you'd try to figure out how to create the most optimal sequence, if you will, that helped the most efficient kind of things that assembly lines could drive, as an example. Why did you decide to leave and ultimately go back to business school? I think there was the two reasons that drove this. The first is, I think a lot of what we did in the core of the work we did, 
was super valuable. I th- a lot of value creation. But one of the things we did in the era that we were in, at least this is my personal take, we got caught up in the mania of the day, which was the B2B exchanges. And most people won't remember this, but there were going to be these B2B exchanges like eBay type exchanges that got stood up in each vertical industry like auto, tires, et cetera. And all the companies would get together to go buy from this exchange, hence lower the cost of acquiring various parts and commodity right. supplies, et cetera. Right. It was going to drive tremendous value in industry. So we got into that. And it turned out that building that was really hard. And that like there was so much hype in terms of how it was going to play out that the reality was the opportunity was not as big or not as easy to execute as people thought it was. And so we lost a lot of brand credibility in not delivering on that when customers had paid a lot of money to us on that piece. Along with that, the 2001 downturn came and we lost a lot of revenue relative to what we had been building towards kind of this vision of becoming like a B2B exchange company. It made me realize it's very easy to follow kind of the herd and think that something can be really successful. And if you're not thought through like the second and third order questions carefully and you don't execute that well, you may not get caught up and you get lucky or there is a very good chance that you do when things don't go your way. It really made me appreciate that. And it made me appreciate that you really need to learn about the intersection of business and technology because technology by itself is not like going to be enough to make companies successful. By the way, this was a real life lesson because what I'm sounding sounds pretty logical, like living day to day for two years, where my group went down from 2000 people to 200 people over two years with like nine or 10 rounds of layoffs was brutal. We see a lot of upside of technology. You can be a lot of downside when companies go down, they go down very quickly. And I got to see that. The second is, I think there was a number of situations where companies invested in and spent a lot of money doing a technology project with us. And we would spend a lot of time, years, in fact, building the solution that they needed. I would, I joined a part of I2, which was called, we would call it as our impact assessments. And we would want to go in and measure the value that we did. I'd go in and see that some of these companies had never turned on their technology. I'd be like, wow, this does not make sense. You spent so much money, you did so much work, yet this technology has now not been turned on. And it, it turns out there is a variety of rational reasons for it. It's not like, there's a lot of things that go into what makes technology successful and how companies translate that into, into like diving real outcomes, if you will. So... So to me, like it all felt like I need to learn a little bit more about business because technology by itself is only one part of the story. Interesting life lesson that, that I'm sure played forward. So you ended up going to Tuck. Shout out to the Tuckies listening to this. You ended up also interning with us for the summer at Tuck. Talk a little bit about the decision process for why you thought consulting was the right step. You know, you talked about following the herd a second ago, and and I know we do get a lot of people from Tuck. It's one of our largest MBA partners. What was the decision process for you? It was interesting, right? Because I'd gone to Tuck very much with the mindset that I want to be a general manager. I want to run something. And my end goal had always been, I want to go run a business. I want that to be the stepping stone of what I come up with. And I went through Tuck with that intention. I went through that process as a summer associate, like for the summer associate process. But the thing that I realized as I got into that was a lot of the opportunities, which are amazing opportunities in many companies at that time were either in 
like go learn finance or go learn sales and you know do a set of rotational programs or like go do brand management which are all like great functional programs but as i've told you before i have this desire to kind of also understand the bigger picture and like the strategy i didn't want to now go on a path where i was now going deep into something versus like kind of the lessons i wanted to learn Now, when you joined Bain full-time after Tuck, did you come in with a different set of goals as somebody with an engineering background, some of the early days on the cutting-edge tech side? Were you sort of thinking, this is two and done, three and done? I was pretty burnt out by tech. I actually avoided tech through all of business school. I didn't take any of the technology classes. Like tech at that time gave me the opportunity since I'd done some work before to not necessarily take them. I did not take any supply chain classes. Like I avoided like a lot of that. And I tried to learn a lot more about things I did not know about. And so when I came to Bain, I was very much of the mindset that I do not want to touch technology with a 10-foot pole. I don't want to get on those cases. And I'm much more interested in learning about other things. I want to say it was like a pretty interesting opportunity because I started my first project, which I still remember, was working for a pharmaceutical company. trying to, And the project was, let's figure out what are the biggest disease areas and what are they going to be the most important focus things for pharmaceutical companies 15, 20 years from now? To like working with a consumer packaged goods company, which was trying to think through a pretty holistic M&A strategy. And so we were actually working hand in hand with an investment bank, looking through a string of pearl strategy. I spent a lot of time in our private equity group. I worked with like an industrial company. Actually, Interesting story. I got to work in financial services during the 2009 downturn, which is unbelievable. I must have some lucky streak to be in the right place at the right time on these downturns. But like, that was a pretty, that was a like pretty amazing. Like, I would say it's it was a tough but interesting experience to see how it played out in the midst of the downturn. And so let's fast forward a little bit. You end up as a partner at Bain several years after all of these experiences. Along the way, was there anything particularly hard? I think people look at the LinkedIn bio and say, yep, seems pretty straightforward, linear path, all signs, uh, all lights are green, all signals are go. You know, what was challenging for you along the journey? To be honest, like the hardest part for me was my first two or three years at Bain. I quit so many times in my first two or three years. I had a difficult path to getting promoted to, at that time as manager, like a senior manager role. A big part of it was, and it took me a while to appreciate this, but I came in with certain interests and certain biases. And like with all consulting firms and like with the clients we serve, there are a set of things that are important. And what I considered important was not necessarily always what was important. At least three things that I struggled with. The first one was, to me, like all of the work was doing the analysis. And if you did the analysis and you had an answer, that could be sufficient. And like, it's how cool an analysis can you do? I had a very humbling moment where I had done some pretty intense analysis on like, I remember it was like the German pharmaceutical market. And there was an analyst, like an AC, who was doing a similar analysis. I forget it was Australia or some other market, where I had spent three or four days doing this deep analysis, proving a point. He used a very simple approach to kind of make the same point, and he did it in 30 minutes. And at the end of the day, the point is still the same, whether you did a lot of analysis or whether you did simple analysis. And I was like, oh, like, why did I waste all this time or 
Like it made me realize like you really need to understand what problem you're trying to solve. You really need to understand like what is the insight, what is the question you're trying to answer and what is the work you need to do to kind of prove that question as opposed to going to how do you, you know, how do you just take the data and do something and then step back. Like the engineering approach of like, if you do A plus B plus C, you get to D, right? Like that distinction and that change was, it was humbling, but it was also a great learning opportunity because I think the, yeah. the flip side, if I had not learned it, was I spent the rest of my career doing exactly the same mistake I'd been doing before. As a former AC, I will say, you know, I've seen that play out both ways multiple times. And I think what's really interesting and humbling is that you, know, you can come to Bain right out of your undergraduate bachelor's program and have a huge impact on people that are more senior, more experienced, because you just think about problems differently. And the, the lesson for me was always, if you can humble yourself and actually learn from those experiences, you'll get better at the job. And then it's a very similar lesson on communication. Like, I don't think whether through business school, whether through my first few years of Bain, I ever cared about communication skills. I always thought that was a nice to have. I'm good at it. I can talk. That's all that matters. But there is so much nuance and there is so much importance in what you say, how you say it, not for the purposes of I'm trying to convince somebody of something, but it's much more around the preciseness of the language on what is the answer that you feel confident about and how you kind of represent that answer versus the question that is being asked. Like that is, there is a rigor to that that I had not appreciated and got to learn over time too, which I thought was useful. Prasad, I want to talk a little bit about your leadership in the TMT uh, practice. You know, after what you said was years actively trying to avoid tech and learn new things, you did end up as a partner and a leader in our tech practice. Can you talk a little bit about the, the trip home, if you will? It really happened after I became a manager, like a senior manager. I forget which project it was, but I had to get on a, basically a technology project. And... It was obviously pretty easy for me to pick it up given my prior background. But what became really interesting was I had this realization at that moment in time that solving strategy problems for technology companies or thinking about opportunities in technology require you to really use both your business skill set and your like technology knowledge to draw insights that you might not otherwise get talked think about. And this ties back to my experience at I2 too, which is like, you can have the greatest strategy in the world. And like what my favorite classes that talk about around strategy, right? Like you learn about Porter's five forces. You'd learn about like, how do you have differentiation in the market? How do you do all these things? But you have this phenomenon where in technology, a new technology comes along and all the old rules and all the old market structure around, you know, customer power and supplier power and differentiation is thrown out of the window because over time, the new technology just creates a better mousetrap and that mousetrap rewrites the rules of the game. And oftentimes, older companies are less able to kind of jump on to the new train for whatever reason. And there are lots of stories about this. Or newer companies kind of are able to come in and disrupt because the rules are very different from the old ones. And so how do you combine the two to come up with the right kind of opportunities and solutions? And how do you kind of make that work? That was a fascinating moment for me to realize those are the most challenging problems to work on. And that got me excited back into it. The other part I will also call out is 
I had not expected to stay at Bain this long. And, and it's probably a statement you hear from a lot of Bainies. But my intention always had been back to, you know, previous discussion around what I want to do. I had always wanted to run something. I'd always wanted to do something because I'd, I'd learned the lessons of business. I'd learned the lessons of why companies are successful. And then I would go and actually execute it, right? But, but one of the things that I really came to appreciate at Bain and probably the single biggest reason I've been here is there is this pretty amazing playbook that almost takes you all the way from you start as an analyst who knows nothing to like, here's how you could be a CEO or an advisor to very senior leaders and here's what you should be doing every six months or every year. And I'm not kidding, right? And here are the tools and the training and the mentors and everything else to kind of help you get to the next step. And so it was always the case that every time I came to the question of, okay, I made it to this level. Now, what should I do next? I was like, wow, this next level looks really interesting. I see all these people who do the next level. They seem super impressive. I don't think I'm capable of that. But I think if I go do that, I'm going to learn some new things that's going to be interesting. And so it's kind of been that like journey that's kept me here much more than any like particular desire to like have like I, I want to make this a career. And even now when I describe myself, I try to avoid using the word consultant to describe myself because I think it's much more about the learning journey and it's much more about helping clients succeed that gets me excited rather than like this being, you know, a profession, if you will. Yeah, I always say my experience is that we give people just a little bit more than they can comfortably handle. And so when you're always at that point where you look and you go, do I want to be at that next level? Go, that looks really hard. And then you say, challenge accepted and get back to work, right? What do you see as the biggest challenges CIOs are facing and how is Bain helping them through the TMT work, tech media telecom practice that you're a leader in? I'd say I follow like the path of interest and whatever interests me in that specific area. And I'll, I'll address it from three different angles, right? From a CIO angle and spending a lot of time with CIOs, it, it is like the CIO has become one of the most important roles at a company. And in fact, I'd argue the role of technology and digital and new business models has gone far beyond the remit of the CIO to the CMO, to the CSO, like to the CRO. Like everybody is thinking about this because every industry is getting disrupted with technology. And so you both have companies dealing with fundamental business model issues because new entrants with very good technology capabilities are coming in with better, like different mousetraps. And you have, the second thing that you have is so many technology choices and huge cost. You have a huge existing set of investments you've already made. So how do you chart a path that helps the company get to the outcomes it needs to from a strategy perspective, get to the technology it needs that helps it get the new foundation of the business, get to the kind of ways of working, if you will, with an agile way of working, other types of things, all the things that need to come together. The challenges are never greater than before in terms of where companies need to go and what they need to do. I think from a technology company perspective, you know, this whole concept of blitzscaling, this whole concept of growing rapidly, kind of some of those things have really revolutionized the pace of disruption. In fact, it's reached, for many years, it's reached a point where a well-funded startup that's proven its concept has sometimes more R&D funding and more scale and willingness to drive losses at the expense of growth that they can succeed faster than an incumbent can who has to deliver profits each year and at the same time turn around the ship while keeping existing customers happy on legacy technology. So the 
the strategy and growth problems and how do you drive that effectively and how do you get into the right areas? There's a lot for companies to think about in, in kind of getting to the right outcomes. And then for private equity companies and investors, there is so much opportunity and there is so much success that's coming here, but there's also so many pitfalls because if you bet on the right ones, you can have a home run, but if you don't, then the growth can stall out. And so how do you think about that? And what are the pros and cons? And what is the investment thesis you can drive? So there's just a lot of really interesting things going on that I think make this job pretty amazing in terms of like the learning opportunity, like the ability to add value, to make a difference with the clients you work with. Yeah. And do you, do you ever look back at, at your leadership in the tech and cloud practice and think, I've gone all this way and I'm sort of working on things that I've basically been preparing for the whole journey? You know, if you think about your undergrad, your first job at, after school and so on and so forth. You're right, but that was never the intention or the goal. And I did not have the foresight to think that it, would, it was going to work out this way, right? I mean, the beauty of a little bit of Bain is, you like someone told me this and it's, it's stayed true all my life. You create as a partner and as, as a person growing up in Bain, you create the journey you want, you create the path you want, you create your own business to some extent. And, and it's a little bit... It's very hard to control what you do in six months, in 12 months, in one to two years, et cetera, because you have the projects you have, the clients have the demands they have. But it's pretty, very easy and completely doable to shape your career over a five, 10 year period. And you really have to create your own kind of bane, your own journey, because that's kind of what's going to be interesting. And your point is right. I ended up where I am and what I learned has all been very helpful for what I'm doing now. But I don't think I had this north start of saying, I'm on this journey, I'm going to do this every step of the way and a linear straight line to get that. I, I feel like it was a lot of like going north, going south, going east, going west and, and kind of finding my way eventually to that path. I completely agree with that, which is why I said, you know, that we call the podcast Beyond the Bio for a reason, because on LinkedIn, Prasad, your path looks super linear and super well choreographed. And knowing as someone who also has built their own bane along the way, that's just not how it works. And you sort of enjoy the journey and figure out what you can do as it happens. Exactly. Prasad, the last thing I wanted to talk about today was your leadership with Asians at Bain. One of our newer, not newest, but one of our newer affinity groups. And obviously, in the state of the world, you know, support for the Asian Pacific Islander community has also been top of mind for a lot of people. But maybe you could just talk a little bit about the origin story for Asians at Bain and your role in that. You know, one of the things that I get a lot of excitement about as Asians at Bain, it's a big passion for me. The origin story is really interesting because this was um, an affinity group that was really pushed for by our ACs and consultants. It was pretty amazing, Keith, because a lot of our ACs and consultants decided, you know, we really see the need for an Asian affinity group. And I'll come to why in a minute. By the way, they had already started this. They would actually yeah. get together on, at that time, conference calls before Zoom was this de facto standard. Two or three, of, I think it's three or four years ago. And they would coordinate, they would talk about it. And, and I think the reasons why they were pushing on it, I would say, were threefold. The first one was a recognition that there is a lot of Asian diversity and there's a lot to be celebrated about it. 
And we want to make that something explicit as opposed to something we do implicitly. The second is there are some things, and I'll talk about this in a minute, and I, I will say that with caution because you don't want to have ever paint anything with a broad brush. But there are some things culturally that people from Asian communities, or Asian backgrounds will sometimes kind of start with. I wouldn't say it's universal, and I wouldn't say if you ask five people, you'll get five different answers. But that is this view that we want to expand and the ways of thinking and the ways of working and the ways of what can be done so that we can bring these cultural differences to to the forefront and make sure that we are kind of thinking about it from a Bain lens on how to make that work within Bain. And we want to have an agent of change within that, if you will. And then the third was a reason, a need for an external voice, which is really about you know, we want to be socially aware and we want to make sure we are making a difference with Asian American issues more broadly, if you will. So a lot of reasons. And I don't want to say it was that well formed when we started. Like that would be kind of, if you really dug into it, there were a few different reasons. I got lucky to be a part of this, to be honest, because the teams were forming it and I was asked if I could help kind of shepherd some of that process. And that's how I got invited into it. And it's been amazing. I've learned so much from the folks I've worked with and kind of what I've seen. And and it's exciting because I think we are still in the very early stages of our journey in terms of where Asians of Bain is going to be. You know, when I look five, 10 years out, I'm pretty excited about what we can accomplish. Yeah. And I think as soon as we saw, and I remember sort of that time at Bain and the ACs largely, so, you know, people one, two, maybe three years out of college really driving this. I think when we saw the value of it and realized that that group just almost structurally turns over every two or three years, we needed somebody on the leadership team to really engage here to sort of maintain that continuity and keep the momentum. Because uh, like every student organization in some ways, you know, people graduate and move on. But I think we realized as a firm that this was something that we really needed. It's been really great. You know, what role has it played in your personal experience, both, you know, from a community inside Bain standpoint, from a connectivity you know, across different levels. How have you been able to do that? And I would also add, I think our diverse abilities group has co-leaders, but you're also co-leading Asians at Bain. And, you know, again, playing a little bit loose with the language, you know, there's sort of a, you represent sort of a South Asian group of people in Asians at Bain and your co-chair sort of leads more of the East Asian, but together it's, it's one organization with similar issues, similar needs, similar focus, but just like Blacks at Bain, there's a lot of diversity in that group. So you're the same in some ways, and depending on who you're talking to, you're different in other ways. It's a really great question, Keith, and I'm not sure I have a great answer to like how we think about this problem. But a few things I think to call out. First, in your last question, I'll come back to kind of how uh, my own journey, if you will. Look, I think on this question of like Asians that being, you know, if you think of Asia as a continent, it's so big and so diverse. And like when I talk to Manny, Manny often jokes like, Philippines and Southeast Asians, and even within Southeast Asians, there could be a dichotomy of like the Filipinos versus the Thai versus the Malaysians. There's a lot of diversity to like what becomes the Asian affinity group, if you will. And I think we have to respect that diversity. I think job one is to be humble and to say, we are not trying to solve everything and we are not trying to represent that this is the group for and that even that this is going to be the final configuration of what Asians at Bain is going to be. I don't know that we right. have addressed that yet. Right. But I think 
there is a very common set of issues around the three topics, the three kind of areas I mentioned earlier that represent very common themes that cut across all of these Asian communities. And, and to be honest, between Grace and I, I don't think we've even considered the fact that, you know, this is South Asian or this is East Asian or anything else. And I'll, I'll, there have been some points where some groups have faced more issues than others. I would argue, I distinctly remember 9-11 and me taking flights after 9-11 and like maybe being nervous to be on a flight and like like how that whole experience played out versus like what happened in the last couple of years with some of my East Asian colleagues as we went through the whole COVID issue. It becomes more to the forefront when certain external issues happen. But for the most part, I think that is a very common set of topics that come together around the three areas but I think we that is a real opportunity to to kind of work together as a community to advance in some of these areas that is actually pretty exciting for me. And has Asians at Bain, for those who aren't familiar with our any of our diversity and affinity groups, you know, when can people get involved in Asians at Bain? And you know, is it something that starts when you're a senior manager or is it only for ACs? How does that play out in practice? I think it's for everybody and it's all inclusive. And in fact, like, a lot of it happens at the office level. There's stuff that happens at the national level. And we are pretty entrepreneurial. And if you have an area of interest you want to go after and you have a passion for it, we will support you to do that. No, there are some boundaries because we don't want to create, like, there are some certain things, and we can talk a little bit more about, like, DE&I and stuff, but there are certain things we recognize and are addressing systematically. So we would not want something that's countervailing against that. But if you have something new that you want to go after and it's pretty additive, like we are really excited to support you in that journey, right? It's everybody. By the way, I would be remiss to say this is an AC or consultant thing. Some of our strongest members come from our practice areas, like our HR teams, our PPK teams. Like this is for everybody and it's it's meant to improve because the, the bane of the future is different from the bane of yesterday. And there's a lot of people who make Bain successful and it's for everybody to come in and be a part of that. And that's pretty exciting as you think about where we are headed. Yeah, and we'll also have Julie Kaufman on the podcast talking about DEI later. And what's been really neat, uh, we just got an email today from the Asians of Bain leader in our office about you know another cultural event that's happening so that everybody understands the history and the background of it instead of just reading the headline you know that this is taking place now. And that's just something we didn't do 20, 25 years ago. And our diversity and affinity groups are, are not just supporting their members, but when you say for everyone, you mean for everyone. And by the way, it's also non-Asians, right? So we are not exclusive to like, oh, you need to be Asian to come into this. This is meant to be an affinity group that's pretty broad and open for everybody with uh, who's interested. Great. And Prasad, let me close out with one question. What gets you excited about the next couple of years for you as you think about Asians at Bain, as you think about the tech practice and cloud computing? What gives you energy these days? So first on the Asians at Bain, look, I think I've been excited to have been a part of it, but I feel like that is so much to do for us on Asians at Bain, a DEI. You know, one of the things you'd asked me a previous question around what is the leadership journey or what have you experienced? I think for the most part, it's been a huge learning opportunity and it's been an important moment for me to recognize it's insufficient to be a participant in some of these events, right? And it's insufficient to be an observer who's supporting. It's important to make a difference and how can you make a difference? Making a difference is hard, making a difference requires commitment. 
And how do you, in a sustained way, make a difference in some of these areas? And what are the avenues individually through the collective power of the Bain community, through partnerships with like the Asian American Foundation or other organizations, even outside of outside of Bain, like make an enormous difference. I feel like we are at the initial stages of, we've set the foundation, but there is a lot to do. And I'm excited about whatever role I can play to make that happen, along with the rest of the folks uh, who are involved in it. I think from a tech and cloud computing perspective, I'm just really excited. I feel like, again, it seems silly to say this, but we are still at the early stages of the technology revolution. And it's kind of an unbelievable. Like, you know, some of my most fascinating projects have been around, like there's been two or three projects where we have tried to forecast, like when will autonomous cars come around? What will the world look like once you have autonomous cars? Is that going to take over? We still are at the early infancy of AI. If AI does get to the point where we can really harness true scale and can really come to solve real problems with AI, what it can help and what it can do is pretty amazing. So this is a lot we can take it forward. I'd also say, so there's a lot of upside and excitement around where companies can go with technology, what it can do, how it can make a difference. And, and so that is, to me, like a really exciting topic. And then the other thing I would say is there is some downsides to technology too. And I think that there is an important need to understand and recognize what those downsides might be, whether it is the amount of technology we consume on a daily basis, whether it's what can happen societally if machines can do a lot of the things we do today, that I think we're still in the very, very early stages of. And to me, it's pretty interesting as you look over the next 20 to 30 years, like where this will go. And like some of the leadership, like not just me, but some of all of the people listening to this podcast, the new leaders will come in and what they need to shape, et cetera. There's, there's some exciting times ahead. Really awesome. Prasad, in the past year and a half, we've actually worked together quite a bit as Bain re-energized its DEI strategy and made some pretty significant investments. It's been great getting to know you over the last two years, although somehow we had never worked together prior to that. And I appreciate you being on the pod today. Thanks for coming. No, it's great. I appreciate you inviting me and thank you for doing this. I know it takes quite a bit of work and um, I appreciate like having a chance to share my story. Thanks, Prasad. Thanks, Prasad.